Hi, welcome back to On She Goes. My name is Vivian Zhang, one-fourth of the On She Goes crew, and we've made it to May. Woo! Welcome to Asian Pacific American Heritage Month and Mental Health Awareness Month. You want to figure out how can I go out there in the world and feel quote unquote normal. I had the privilege of meeting incredible people that you would really only meet by chance. There's a lot of places on this planet that have humbled the shit out of me. I think the thing that makes you unique and different is the thing that's going to position you for success. I don't shine if you don't shine. I was glowing. You were. I was truly in my damn homeland. What a perfect time to talk to Sahaj Kaur Kali, founder of Brown Girl Therapy. I'm fangirling a bit because she's the first person that has created content that resonates so deeply with my identity as a first-generation Chinese-American woman. Her words clearly resonates with a lot of people because her follower has grown from 26,000 followers to 31 in just the last week and a half since we last talked. And it's just so amazing to watch that grow organically and taking a moment to celebrate her and the community. So a little mo bit more about Sahaj. She is a mental health and identity writer, training to become a therapist in grad school and a journalist and a founder of Brown Girl Therapy. Um, that's a lot that she's juggling, which is amazing. And a little bit more about Brown Girl Therapy. It's a safe community for women, especially South Asians, first gens, hyphenates, and women of color to explore our identities and discuss taboo topics as they pertain to our mental health and wellness in this world and in our relationships. And I love that you called this out in your newsletter that it's also a space for mental health professionals to become multiculturally competent and to learn more about working with our communities because it is such a white space and I think a lot of people would be scared to like say that so directly, but it needs to be said. So let's jump right in. Welcome Sahaj to On She Goes. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I gave a lot about how where you are right now, but as we all know, it is always a journey to get to where people can finally see uh, the form that they're at. So can you give us a little background about how you got here? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I... I'm a writer by trade, and I have worked in journalism for the last six and a half years. Um, but I've always been a mental health advocate. Um, I struggled myself when I was younger with my mental health, and just going through that process of trying to find a therapist, um, having that conversation with my immigrant parents, um, really just solidified my love for advocating for mental health, um, you know, across the marginalized populations, but also just in general, talking about it openly, being vulnerable, and knowing that that is a part of helping other people feel okay asking for help. Um, so through my work um, in journalism, I have done a lot of, you know, editing with freelancers on their identity-driven content. I have done mental health advocacy in the form of writing. And there just came a point where I knew I always wanted to be a therapist um, and just it never felt like the right time, especially as I, you know, grew to love my job and I still do. But now as a 31-year-old, um, I was, there came a point when I was 30 where I was like, you know, it's now or never. I kind of want to take that leap. So I am now in graduate school studying to be a therapist. Um, I'm in my, you know, I'm finishing up my first year and I decided to start Brown Girl Therapy um, just as something, it started as a passion project, but, you know, I'm realizing now I'm so humbled by how fast it's grown that there are people who 
are like me craving the same community I've wanted. So it's been, you know, a lot getting to this point, but it feels like everything is coming together. My work as a writer, my love for mental mm -hmm. health, now being in graduate school, it's kind of all just fitting together. All the intersectionalities, it's just like this perfect void that's been missing for so many people. And I think it's so amazing that you're juggling so many things as a student, as a full-time journalist, as someone who's running Brown Girl Therapy on her own, um, and all the other friends, daughter, you know, all the other <laughs> nouns that comes with being a woman of color. So how right. has it been juggling everything? You know, it's <laughs> not easy. <laughs> I think a lot of people really underestimate the amount of time. So just taking Brown Girl Therapy as its own entity, I think a lot of people underestimate how much time it takes to create content and to like get really vulnerable with yourself and to write something and share it in a way that, you know, is professional and mature and relatable and easy to digest and looks good on social media and all of these things. Um, but then add the fact that I am working full-time, you know, regular full-time hours, um, and then I'm in graduate school full-time and graduate school classes are in the evening full-time. So um, I'm also a newlywed and I also moved to a new city less than a year ago. So it's just like, yeah, I'm, I'm really busy, but it's all really great stuff and I love it. And, you know, I have a very supportive partner and I have my own self-care, you know, routines. And I feel like I'm finally hitting a really good rhythm. I love that. I know, I was just gonna say like, on top of all that, you're still trying to take care of your mental health. <laughs> like exactly. the, the thing that started, it's like, oh yeah, and this is, and that takes time and that takes um, effort. And I'm glad that you've kind of figured out a way that works for you to juggle it all and manage it all. Um, mm -hmm. And how has it been to see this community grow? It's been it's less been than wild. a year. It's like, it's been 11 months, I think. Wow. So I've had the handle since November 2018 because I, you know, just realized that it was something I wanted to do. I like stumbled across a bunch of pages like therapy for black girls and Latinx mm. therapy and all of these really great um, communities for marginalized populations. And then the more I looked for, for communities that were for Asian Americans, I realized um, they were still targeted and run by and created for and by um, East Asians, which yep. is great and we need these populations, but I just, I realized that nothing existed for South Asian women um, or South Asians in general. So I was like, I'm just gonna take the handle because it exists and then sat on it for a long time and then last June, so it's been 11 months now, I just officially was like, I'm just gonna post and see what happens. You know, I did not go into this thinking it was going to grow into a brand or a business. Um, I'm officially starting an LLC with it, which is really exciting. Congrats. But thank you. <laughs> but, you know, it's for me, it really does come from a service, a selfish and a service oriented place. So selfishly, I wanted something like this that existed and never existed. So I created it and it's helping me as much as it helps everyone else. And then service wise, because I really do want to increase resources and destigmatize therapy and mental health. So. Um, it's been really humbling just to see that like it's being received so well. Isn't it fascinating with social media how, at least for me, I don't have these conversations in my Portland area as much, but I'm slowly but surely finding all these little handles that have been saying all these things that's been in my mind. And it's mm -hmm. like now there's this virtual community that I do find really reliable and very vulnerable. 
have you connected with other people who's in the so like mental health space who's thriving on social media too? Yeah, I have. It's been really fun because oh. just like you said, it's it's crazy because the Asian American population is big, you know? We can say the biggest. that. But, <laughs> but it's small in the sense that like when you live in little pockets around the world mm. or in the US, you're not you're still not you're still a minority. You're still not necessarily exposed to other people who look like you are the same age at the same school have the same hobbies so that's the beauty of social media is that you get to connect with other people who are similar to you and look like you and want the same things as you um and so that's no different for me building this platform i've been able to connect with therapists of color across you know the us the uk australia everywhere and it's been really awesome because you know it's not there's no competitiveness when it comes to this like the more the merrier we need to we need to you know we need the we we need more representation and so um it's just been really great and supportive to find other people who are in the space already or want to join and help with brown girl therapy and i've just started like scheduling a bunch of calls with other mental health professionals who are south asian women and it's just been really nice to feel seen and validated the same way that I'm sure people read the posts I create and feel seen and validated. Yeah. And before we started recording, we were talking about how this isn't just for South South Asian women. It's like anyone who's gone through this experience as a first generation, that experience itself is so unique that mm-hmm. when your parents are immigrants, you're in a brand new country, you're the first to pave the way, you're going to, it's going to resonate no matter what we look like. And I think that's so beautiful. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. I appreciate that. I think when I did start Brown Girl Therapy, um, it, I I think I did start it with the expectation that it would be a South Asian women community. Mm. Um, but as I started, you know, exploring more of my own unique mental health struggles and writing about my own story, I realized that it was actually more than that. Yes, part of Mm. it is being South Asian and being an Asian American and being a minority in this country, but even more than that, it was being a child of immigrants and being the first to do a lot of things in my family. Um, And so when I started to tap into that network Mm. and that population, I realized that that's that's where I think my growth came from because I think nothing like that has ever existed. And so I think I created something um, and started something that just didn't exist, which is mind blowing because it's not like we're new. It's you know, not we've new. Been in this country forever. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's crazy and it's wild and I love it. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's a lot of things at once. Because <laughs> you're learning and processing at simultaneously as creating and servicing. It's kind of like those two dualities. And you always talk about dualities, which I love. Um, but we're constantly living in dualities. Maybe we're just used to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so let's jump into some of the therapy questions. Um, for my own background, I've been going to therapy the last year and a half, and I it's been absolutely life-changing. I love therapy. I love my therapist. I'm so grateful to have found one that I feel so safe with. But there's a fact out there where Asian Asian Americans are three times less likely to seek mental health services than white people. Can you talk a little bit more about the stigma among among the Asian American community in mental health? Yeah, so I think generally um, in a lot of Eastern cultures and communities where collectivism is a big part of the belief mm. system, um, reaching for outside help or seeking therapy is seen as a failure, right? So it's seen as either a failure that you couldn't help yourself or it's seen as a failure that your parents or community couldn't help you um, or that you needed to seek something outside of your network and your your home. 
but it's important for us to deconstruct these beliefs, right? Because seeking therapy is not shameful. Um, I also think that Asian Americans particularly suffer the consequences from the model minority trope. Mm. And so we feel a lot of pressure in this country to perform and to be successful and to do things well. And so when we need help or we struggle, which is totally okay and valid, um, it can feel like we just need to power through and figure it out ourselves. Mm. Um, so you add the children of immigrant identity on top of all of that, and then you have a whole population of people who feel like their parents had it worse, so they can't ask for help. Um, mm -hmm. And there's a lot of guilt and shame and this burden of feeling like, my parents moved to this country and made sacrifices, so I should be able to just do this and figure it out by myself. Um, so these are all stigmas that make it really hard for children of immigrants, Asian Americans, to seek help. And I think that's why they are less likely to reach out for help. Yeah. I feel all those points you just put, <laughs> just said and said so beautifully. And knowing this, I and knowing that this is already a barrier, I would love for our listeners to walk away from this episode feeling a little bit more equipped to seek mental health services. So if you can share some steps to find a therapist, if it's your first time, and what to ask during a consultation. Definitely. So I think the three biggest things are why, where, and how. So why do you want to see a therapist? I think it's really important to get clear on why, because a therapist is going to ask you, you know, what are you struggling with? What do you want to talk about during our sessions, especially initially? So I think it's important for people to um, sit with themselves and try to be honest about what it is that they're hoping to get out of therapy. That'll give them a bit better picture of what it is they might need from a therapist. Um, and then there's where, where can you find a therapist, right? So ask trusted friends who are in therapy. Um, there are tons of databases. Um, Psychology Today is a good one because um, you can filter for literally everything, gender, insurance, um, modality, school, race, everything. And then Open Path Collective is a really good resource because um, it's a database of therapists who are offering discounted rates. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and then, you know, there are other ways. If you have insurance, call your the number on the back of your insurance card and they will send you a list of therapists who are in network. Um, if you live in a town where there are community clinics um, or graduate programs that, are, that have mental health programs, then they usually have clinics and on-site um, help. You can see an intern or a graduate student who is getting supervised and it is much cheaper. Mm. And then you know, you should set up a lot of consultations. So that brings me to the third point, which is how, how do you find the right therapist for you? So it's hard and it's, it's really unfortunate. And this is a systemic issue that I'm not going to go into, but the onus is on the person seeking therapy to find the right therapist. Um, and I like to say that you should approach it initially very as a transaction, like think about how you would pay a graphic designer to do work for you. Um, you are literally looking for a provider to provide services mm. and you are going to compensate them. So you should go into this knowing that you are asking them questions as, and getting to know them as much as they are getting to know you um, because you want a return on investment on your mental health, on your mm. wellness, on the money you're putting into it, the time, the energy, the work. And it's exhausting. But, you know, when you have those consultations, I think it's really important to ask, you know, what does therapy look like in the room with you? Um, get them to explain what exactly how exactly do they even do therapy? You know, mm -hmm. what is their modality? What do they think is important? Will they focus on your past? Will they focus on your relationship with your parents? Will they 
be more focused on action-oriented steps for you to take. Um, and then if you're looking for a culturally affirming therapist, which is really important to people of color, when you have these consultations, don't be scared to ask them, you know, what does, how do you incorporate multiculturalism into your work? Have you ever worked with someone who has my background? Um, if not, you know, how will you? And, mm. you know, what does that look like? I think people, people make the assumption that they need to see a therapist who looks like them in order to get help. Um, and yes, I can see how that would take a lot of the, the hesitation out of someone's approach to seeking mental health care. But the truth is, statistically, the number one um, indicator of success in therapy is the relationship between you and your therapist. So it doesn't matter what the therapist looks like, where they come from, you have to be comfortable with them. If you're not comfortable, then you are not going to be comfortable being vulnerable or being open to the work. So you just have to, I just wanna remind people that once you're doing, when you're doing these consultations, when you're looking for a therapist, even if you attend a couple sessions, listen to your gut. If you stop mm. feeling comfortable, then you might need to find someone new and that's okay. It's so okay to, it's like dating. To mm -hmm. You have to find the right person. And I want to share a exactly. little bit about my search of finding a therapist because I think it's just good for people to hear. So I mm -hmm. sent out 15 emails to therapists in approximately close to my work. Cause I was like, I want to be able to go from like work, go after work to therapy. And I had to figure out her schedules, I wanted it on the weekends because it was too hard for me to have it during the work day and then just go immerse back into work was never going to work for me. So I found someone with weekend hours and of the 15, so many came back being full. So many came back not actually on my insurance. Um, some just never replied. I thought some they would reply right away. It took me three weeks after I sent out all these emails to find two people who were like within all these parameters. And then I was lucky that the one I did set up consultation with, I felt extremely safe with, and she is a white woman. And I did go in being kind of skeptical, like, will she understand? And what I found is my relationship with her, I mean, it's like, she she's such a mirror for me. She's someone who just sees and hears and understands me that in that, in this context, it didn't, it doesn't change our relationship at all. So... Mm -hmm. For those who are seeking therapy, know that it does take time and it's totally worth it. And hopefully the services will be, hopefully the search will be easier, right? I, that's, that's. Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, with Instagram and social media, I do think that there are more and more databases popping up for people mm. of color. There are more conversations happening around how to find a therapist. I think even just our generation talks about it way more, right? We can see it more in media. We see it more in our conversations with each other. Um, and I, you know, I like that you related it to dating because, you know, people make the assumption that if you're gonna, if you wanna seek therapy, then the first therapist you find should be able to help you. But just like you're not going to hit it off with every single person, you're not gonna hit it off with every therapist you meet. Yeah. So it's really important to kind of figure out what's gonna be a right fit. I've had friends who, you know, went through four or five therapists, two or three sessions each to find the one that was a right fit. And it's really daunting, I know, mm -hmm. but it really is so magical when you find the therapist for you. Just like dating, when you find the love, you're like, exactly. It's, it just all comes together and it is so worth it. And as we're talking about different ways of therapy, I know virtual therapies on the rise, especially because of Corona. Um, what, what do you think of virtual therapy and like what, have you seen that it's just as helpful or like 
what, what's been going on? Yeah, I think that virtual therapy is helpful. I think right now um, it is therapy is way more accessible than it's ever been because a lot of therapists um, are offering virtual sessions and um, it's, you know, it varies state to state on the laws, but a lot of states allow for therapists to see anyone else living in that state at the very least. So, you know, distance and location are really big barriers to finding a therapist. You know, you can be in the same state, but you can be three hours apart. But now more than ever, you can see that therapist because they're offering virtual sessions. Um, I do think that if people anyone listening who may need mental health care right now should seek out virtual therapy. But if you don't enjoy it, don't knock all therapy after COVID Mm. is over. I think that the experience is very different for everyone. And some people like it, some therapists like it, some therapists hate doing virtual therapy, which is why they don't offer it normally. But so really just, you know, if you're going to give it a shot, give it a shot. If you don't like it, don't don't make the assumption that you're not going to like therapy at all ever, mm. you know, when this is over. So I just want to make that note and that distinction because I don't want people to be discouraged. Yeah, I love that. Um, and then once you start therapy, like what advice do you have for first gens and minorities who to talk to their parents about mental health? Because it is a scary, scary topic. It is, yes. Um, you know, I've been thinking of this question a lot because a lot of people ask me this just in the DMs of Brown Girl Therapy and I'm working on a post now that I want to post about how to talk to our parents about therapy but you know just doing my research and talking to other therapists and talking to my friends and thinking about my own experience there really is no easy way to do it Um, and it really varies on who your parents are as people and what they believe in but I think one of the biggest tips I can give is to break it down in a way that your parents will understand. And so instead of focusing on the wellness or like self-care aspect of therapy, bring in psychoeducation where you actually do your research and have research-driven conversation with your parents. Because a lot of immigrant parents are like, if they don't understand it, but they can see the proof behind it, they may come around to it. And I think that's how it was with my own parents. So if you can, you know, think of it more medically and more from an aspect where it's like, in order to get the help I need, this is why I need it and have that research, I think that you are more likely to get them on board. But if after all of your conversations with your parents and they still don't come around, I really hope that you'll still consider seeing a therapist if you need to. Um, You know, it is no one by any means is under any obligation to ever share that they're in therapy if they don't want to. Mm. And that goes the same for our parents, but being in collectivist communities and being raised to like want to tell our parents everything we're doing and get their approval and support, it can be really difficult. Yeah. And my story with therapy, I think went the way that most people would be scared of where my dad threatened to stop talking to me and was very ashamed that I was going to therapy. And it was funny, it was my first session to therapy. I was like on the, in the Uber, I was like, hey, I'm gonna go to therapy. He's like, wait, what? And he was like, there's nothing wrong with your life. Like he was dismissing all these facts because I could see he was taking it very personally and very de- like defensively. Mm-hmm. And I think I was, I'm in a space where I'm see my parents as their actions are not a reflection of me, it's a reflection of them. And it was a great first session with my therapist because I was like, hey, this just happened. But I, I like now that I've been in it for a year and a half, both my parents have been 
I mean, I'll just share with them what I've learned. And it's like this vulnerability of showing that things are changing, like what you said, maybe not even so data driven, but like through your own anecdotes. And my mom has been so open to it. She's like loving hearing about it, kind of heartbroken by some of the stuff because it does tie back to some stuff they couldn't control. Mm -hmm. But like the more I talk about it, the more she talks about it. And it's this like great cycle of like, we're finally having these conversations because therapy's given me the tools to be able to have it. Exactly. So I know a lot of people would, it's just a very scary topic, but like I went through it. That probably was the worst reaction possible, but I wouldn't change a single thing. Yeah, it is very, very scary. Um, It was very scary when I needed to see a therapist um, like a decade ago when I was going through something really traumatic and um, my parents wanted me to see one of their friends' friends who was like a South Asian psychiatrist and I was like, that defeats the purpose of me feeling comfortable and, sp- and safe in the space to talk to someone vulnerably about what I'm going through. Because your parents knew this person, right? That's like a breach of... <laughs> yeah, even though there's confidentiality, I like still didn't feel comfortable. I'm sure my psychiatrist wouldn't... That lady wouldn't have said anything, but... It's in the back it didn't of your make head. Me feel comfortable. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And again, it's it's really important that you are comfortable with your therapist. But I really do admire anyone who broaches that conversation with their parents. But I do hope that however their parents respond, like you said, it is more a reflection of what they understand and what they know and mm-hmm. how they see the world and not a reflection of you by any means. Yeah. And I love that your mission is twofold. One destigmatizing mental health within the Asian community, and then two, educating the mental health system to serve diverse experiences. And they have to happen simultaneously because it's like, if I don't see Asian Americans in therapy or mental health space, I feel less welcomed, but then how do you get more people? So how has that been for you? It's a pretty big mission. And um, what are you seeing as you're going to grad school? That's a good question. I... You know, it's interesting because I've obviously have always known my whole life that I'm a person of color, Um, but, you know, I've lived my life. It's been fine. I've been happy. I've assimilated. I've adjusted. It's been great. Um, You know, I have a balance between both of my cultural identities, but coming into graduate school in August, um, I think I was hit all over again with the fact that I'm a person of color. Mm. And so I'm almost like re-exploring and relearning what that means to be a person of color um, because I have been very privileged to not have to think about it as often. I am, you know, quote unquote, white passing because I'm fair skin. I, you know, speak English perfectly and don't have an accent. I have Mm. American friends. I feel American. I, I have I've been, it's been a very privileged experience for me. Um, So coming in now and entering a field and a profession that is 80% white is, has been very interesting. I think interesting is the only word I really know (laughs) how to use. Um, I definitely feel like I worry about being tokenized. Not that anyone in my program or anyone directly with me does, but I think in general, just being a person of color in a field that is majority white, it's easy to feel like, where does my identity play into this and how do other people see me, both my colleagues and potential clients? And that's just been very interesting to navigate because it brings up a lot for me. And so, you know, just because someone's a therapist or studying to be in the mental health field doesn't mean that they don't need therapy and need to keep checking their own resistance or biases or identity crises. And that's where I am right now. Um, And I do feel more of a weight because I'm in a system, an academic system that 
you know, wasn't necessarily created for people like me. I am learning theories and techniques that weren't necessarily created for people like me. Um, and now I am learning how to take everything I'm learning and turn it into something that will help marginalized populations. And I'm not the only one doing it, right? There are plenty of therapists of color. There's just not enough of us. And so we're all just trying to navigate that that balance of, okay, let me learn and get this license and do everything the way that we're we're supposed to do it because that's how the system is set up, which is unfortunate, and then take everything and make sure that we can help the populations that we come from. So um, yeah, it's a journey and I'm on it right now. I'm in the middle of it. So I don't know if you ask me this question again in like three years, maybe my answer will be different. That's so exciting. We'll have to check back in in three years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that you mentioned when you're reminded again of being a person of color because I think it's kind of taboo to even talk about that. Mm -hmm. Like to be Asian American is living in these two dualities where it's fluid. Sometimes I'm in spaces where I'm like, I forget I'm Chinese because Chinese isn't my identity that's always present Mm -hmm. and always showing up. I'm probably more reminded I'm a woman in most spaces than anything else. But I think it's like just accepting that we're able to live in both worlds and like it's different per environment um, is so great that you've touched upon. So then you're doing so much. Do you have plans to get a team or extra help on Brown Girl Therapy? Um, I would love to expand the team. Um, Like I said, I'm in the process of creating it as an actual business. And so as I navigate this, I'm very aware now that I can't do this alone. So Yes, yeah. I would love to love to expand the team. I think again, if we if we have this conversation again next year, maybe I'll have a team, and this will be an entirely different organism than it is right now. Yeah, it's just in its infancy, and it's exactly. going to keep growing, and it takes a village yes. to grow your baby. <laughs> yes, it definitely does. Uh, <laughs> and what's your vision for Brown Girl Therapy? Um, that's a good question. I. I'm just so excited about how far it's come that it's, you know, I'm trying to remind myself to not get so caught up in like what else I can do and like how fast can things go? Because like you said, it's an infant and I need it to just grow the way it needs to grow. And for, you know, sometimes when we can relinquish control, then things will just happen and you'll, I'll be more aware of like, oh, this is what's needed. This is what I can start doing. And so one of those things are, workshops and so I'm really excited to like I'm working on a workshop right now a digital one on exploring our bicultural identity and there's going to be a lot of research and breakout discussions and writing reflections and you know I'm really excited to offer that but I see that being now during COVID um, era and then post-pandemic I see it being a lot more IRL stuff so maybe a conference maybe meetups maybe a book club maybe you know, take these conversation clubs I've been doing and put them in little pockets in cities around the U.S. or the world. Um, Trainings down the road, I would love to do how to train other mental health professionals to work with our population. Um, And then eventually, I, I think I want to start a nonprofit associated with it to kind of help fund mental health care in our populations. So lots of big, big and small goals. All so important. And I love that you're thinking of how to train people who are not in the minority space to help the minority space. I think that's always a part that's missing in a lot of our diversity uh, goals. It's like, it makes sense because we got to focus on like 
the here and now, but mm-hmm. in the long term, everyone should be trained on how to be multiculturally competent. Exactly. Um, and one of the posts you put up was about being children of immigrants um, and how being at home right now can be pretty tough for first gens. And even when you put out that post, I cr- like my inner child cringed. It was like, <laughs> if I was at home right now with my parents, 24 hours for unknown, uncertain amount of time, whew, that would not be easy. So why does self-care look so different for first gens? I just think that like, we're being rooted in an entirely different country than our parents were rooted in, but also than what our parents understand or know or like get about this country and culture and world that we live in. Um, And I think the environment that we grow up in or grew up in or are growing up in right now are environments that don't necessarily nurture our independence as people. So going Mm. back to what I was saying earlier, like Eastern cultures, you know, really, really drive home the collectivism and the collectivist belief that we are a a part of something bigger than us. And I think that is so beautiful. And I like love that sentiment so much, but it can be a little detrimental to raising kids in a new country. And for us as first gens to feel like, well, how do I navigate who I am outside of this household? Or how do I take care of myself outside of this household? And I don't think we are nurtured to do that. I think it's really hard and it's new territory. It's difficult. And I think self-care just feels really selfish for us. Yeah. And they came to a country that's born from freedom and independence. And independence is like above all. So whenever I think of my independence and being such an independent person, it always is tied back to this voice that says selfish because mm-hmm. of the way we were raised. Um, and But I think that's a superpower for first gens, right, is you have this beautiful think above and beyond me from our parents, and then you have independence, which is what's needed to create your own stories and, like, pave new paths. Um, And, yeah, I think as I grow older, I realize that superpower, and I'm just so grateful for it. Mm -hmm. So can you share some self-care tips just for first gens, too? Yeah, so, I mean, I think, like I said, I think self-care is harder for us, but I think one of the biggest things that I recommend for first gens to try to do is to celebrate the small wins, you mm-hmm. know? So if if you say no for the first time after you've said yes 3,000 times, celebrate that. Like, that is that is boundary practice, you know? It, it is, yeah. it, even if it's not what our white or American counterparts you know, understand like that is, that is still really important to celebrate, you know, in the same way, like if you're at home, it's funny and it's humorous to talk about, but it's true because I still feel like this when I go home. But if you have to pretend like you're going to sleep earlier, just to go upstairs and be able to have some time alone, like, you know, there are little ways that you can kind of push and pull and find little pockets of self-care. And I think, I think it's really important to find ways that you can nurture all of your identities because Mm. you are not just the child of your immigrant parents. You are so much more than that. You are, you know, where you you are like the job you want to do. You are like the friend. You are the aunt, the... I don't know, the considerate person, the... The partner of yeah, interracial partner, relationships. The, yeah, it's like you are so much more than... Like, we all have so many identities going at once that it's yes. important for us to be able to, like, nurture all parts of ourselves. And part of that is just 
being who we are as people and taking care of that. So um, just celebrate the small wins. Start slow. <laughs> yeah, that's huge. Because saying no for the first time in some people, it's like 25 years, mm-hmm. 40 Definitely. years. I think, my, I think my mom just started to learn to say no, honestly. And she's 58, you know, and you can just, it's so hard to say no in our culture, but it's such a big win. (laughs) It really is. It's so hard. And then even when you say no, you feel a lot of guilt. And I Mm -hmm. think it's just a lot of showing up for yourself with self-compassion always, like incessantly just showing yourself self-compassion because it's not ever going to feel easy, but it doesn't mean that it isn't the best thing for you. Yeah. And just acknowledging that those habits bleed into different parts of our lives right so like Mm -hmm. saying no at home and saying no at work I find a lot of my friends at work it's hard for them to set boundaries because they're so used to just sacrificing sacrificing and then achievement based so it's like then you just become a workaholic which is so acceptable and so great for the system Mm -hmm. and then like when I'm like just say no like as if it's so easy I always have to remind myself like oh like saying no is so hard for us and I feel like I'm seeing more people feel more comfortable with that, though. Yeah, I definitely think across the board, um, I've been talking to a lot of my Asian American co-founders and entrepreneurial friends. And I think across the board, we've agreed that like the Asian American consciousness is like, it's like, it's like starting, it's like buzzing, you know, there's like this. I I feel it. I feel it too. I can't put it into words either. I don't know why. And I try to tell my boyfriend, I'm just like, I literally feel it. Like I think of something and I'll see on social media and it's like validating so many Mm -hmm. epiphanies or like even finding your handle. I was like, holy shit. Like I too have been like, this experience has felt so isolated. And then for you to have grown so quickly, it's like, okay, this is such a, this is a common experience that needed to be talked about. Yeah. Um, and our parents aren't all bad, you know, there's good times. <laughs> what Definitely. Some, I know you wrote this post too, so that's, it made me laugh because I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about this. But what are some <laughs> things that people can do with their immigrant parents? Yeah, so I feel like something, the balance I'm trying to definitely hit with Brown Girl Therapy Post is like, hey, your experience as a child of immigrants is super valid, right? It is difficult. It is hard. We don't talk about it enough. We don't seek help for it enough. We don't validate it enough. But with that said, our parents are also not like these terrible, horrible... I mean, yes, in some cases, if you have really toxic parents, that's a different ballgame. But across the board, I wouldn't say that immigrant parents are bad people or you know they're doing the best that they can with what they have Mm -hmm. so I try to make sure that I offer resources for even just making the most of those relationships because it can be really easy to feel misunderstood at home and then that just creates a lot of distance between you and your immigrant parents and that's just really sad to me because one of the things that is across the board in Eastern cultures with um, anyone who comes from an Eastern culture and comes here to America, any immigrant actually, you know what, forget Eastern culture, any immigrant family, whether it's like even European or African or wherever, um, a lot of our history is oral history. A lot of that history gets lost um, during the migration, during the leaving behind of families, like. You know, my parents and I have had conversations where, you know, 
my parents always give me a hard time about whatever this or that. And I'm always like, you moved to this country when you were like 30 and 27 or however old you were and you have left your parents behind and now you make me feel guilt because you don't want me to ever leave you. And it's like, you know, finding that balance, (laughs) finding that balance of being like, I get where you're coming from. But like, I also just, if I, if I cater to my independence, it doesn't mean that I don't care about you anymore. If I take care of my mental health, it doesn't mean I reject you as people. So something I'm trying to learn is like, who are my parents? You know, who are these people? So if, you know, if you're trying to figure out ways to spend more quality time with your immigrant parents, I think, you know, records that record their stories. Like my last mm. grandparent passed away in December and my biggest regret for my whole life is going to be that there is going to be so much oral history that is now lost in my family. When I have kids, there is going to be so much oral history that I will not be able to pass down. And so now I'm making the most of that time with my parents to record their stories or their relationship with their parents or hear about what their immigration um, what their immigration story is. Like, what was it like for them to move to this country? Like, you know, I've learned so much about my parents over the last year, just asking them questions that they don't offer, you know, information about. And I think I have it all recorded and it's just going to be such a great thing for me to have forever and pass down to my kids. Um, in the same way, technology has been, is has revolutionized the way that you can connect with your parents. You can uh, go on Netflix and find a movie that they used to watch um, in their, you know, in their language, and you can watch it with them. You can digitize their old photos. That way, they will always be available for generations to come. You can learn family recipes and write them down. Like mm-hmm. there are so many fun ways that you can connect, not only with your parents but with your roots. You know. Yeah, and I think growing up, I struggled with understanding my parents' love language. Like mm-hmm. all I saw was these TV shows of big, affectionate this is what love is. Like even saying I love you wasn't a thing in my household. And that was really hard for me as a kid. But now as I've gotten older, I'm like, oh, their love language is like so deep. It's like Mm -hmm. everything they've ever done is their love language. And I love that you're, love the advice of like building these connections with them through their stories. Because every time I hear more about their stories, I understand a little bit more about myself. And it's such a... I mean, so I, I, I want to acknowledge like some parents don't want to talk about their stories of coming here because it is so traumatic and of it course. is so hard. But if they're willing to share, it's extremely eye opening. And you see how brave these people are like your parents were our parents were so brave to try mm-hmm. something new. Um, but I do feel what you said about they left their parents in another country, yet they want you to stay at home. My yeah. mom's in New York. I'm in Portland. I think every other day she's like, so when are you coming back? Right. <laughs> yeah, they're 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 great people. They're hardworking. They're so lovely. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's it's like you said, it's like their parents aren't always going to be comfortable with sharing their stories for multiple reasons. I will say across the board among a lot of my um, children of immigrant friends, if you take your parents on a walk, I don't know what it is, but I've, I think walk across the board, we've, we've all been able to get our parents to open up about something just by going on a nature walk. And I think it's it's hilarious to me, but wow. I think it's like, just, just like prioritizing that one-on-one time with them. You know, sometimes I have to separate my parents in order to get the most mm. out of them as individuals and learn about them as people and not just as my parents. Unlocking your immigrant parents' stories walking <laughs> yes that's it that's I the wonder, whole that's it that's the whole book <laughs> <I> wonder, <laughs> one page go for a walk and 
obviously you're a writer by trade and how has writing been for you as like a healing tool and being so vulnerable through your social post? I have always been a writer. You know, I just like have always enjoyed and found purpose in just sharing my life. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, with technology, it's very different now because there are thousands you know, thousands of people who are reading what you're writing. Um, it can go viral at any minute. Like, there is this pressure to, like, make things sound good, look good, live on the internet forever. Perfect. But, <laughs> yeah, but that's, like, also not reality. So mm. I have always been really... I've always found it's important to remind myself that, you know, being perfect is not reality, so it's important to always be vulnerable and... That's why I think brown girl therapy has done so well, honestly. I think the fact that I am just comfortable sharing my truth um, is what people crave. People crave that kind of connection and community. And it's an interesting identity to take on, like being a vulnerable storyteller. It's, you know, my parents never really understood it. My brother once when I was like, 20 and wrote a Facebook status about something he was like I don't understand why you're always sharing things with the world and I was like you know that has always sat with me because I've always come back to that question like why am I and mm. I try to share things like anytime I'm about to post something I'm like will this help someone else like you cannot people are way more comfortable getting vulnerable and tapping into their own struggles and sharing them if you are willing to open up about yours so for me I'm like you know what if I can lead the way and pave the way to say hey it's okay like yeah it's not perfect sometimes it's messy sometimes it sucks sometimes it's really hard sometimes it hurts but like we're gonna be okay then maybe other people will be comfortable saying hey I'm actually struggling too like I'm okay most days but like other days I'm not and I think that's where I find my purpose is like mm. really just opening up about myself so other people feel comfortable opening up about themselves. Yeah. And I think depending where you grew up in America too, there's this deep loneliness that first mm -hmm. gens and Asian Americans understand. I lived in Maine for a little bit. So we're the only Chinese family of like 5,000 people. And with this vulnerability now, it's like you're able to share these stories and like I think for me, I'm always trying to prevent someone from feeling that loneliness. So it's like, I'll always reach my hand out to be like, don't be alone. Cause it's such a like heartbreaking feeling. I mean, that's where a lot of trauma comes from, but yeah. I, I'm so like the fact that writing came naturally to you and then your profession is in writing. Was it hard to go down a creative career with your parents in any way? Um, yes, I think you know, like most Asian parents, my parents didn't really understand it. Um, I did come from that whole stereotypical Indian dad who wanted me to be a doctor. Um, I do have older siblings, so my brother um, is every Asian American's dream. He is both a lawyer and a doctor. Um, he went to both law school and med school, and he is 10 years older than me. So those were really fun footsteps to try to fill. Um, and then my sister is eight years older than me, and she actually pursued fashion. So mm. she kind of paved the way to like other things being an okay um, industry to pursue or to work in. Um, and something that I remember my dad always saying to my sister when I was little and would just overhear them talking about what she wanted to do was if you're going to do it, then you need to do it the best you can. Like it needs to be the best. Yeah. And you know, that is a very Asian American mentality of like, be perfect at it. If you're going to do it, then be the best at it, which is, could be problematic. But for me, it actually 
drove home my own mentality of like, you know what, if I do want to be a creative, if I do want to write, then like, why not just go in 100%, see what happens? Like, I can't just, I can't half-ass it at this point, you know? Um, And so when I landed my job at HuffPost, there were... It was very serendipitous for a lot of reasons. I didn't study journalism, but I've always been a writer. So it was really awesome to kind of land this like prestigious job at a media group that a lot of people knew. Um, My parents, like most Asian parents, were able to say, well, I know what HuffPost is, so I can like now brag about you to my friends because you're doing something I understand. And I was like, that's not the point of me doing this. Like there are, you know, and, and that's how it is with brown girl therapy. My parents know I'm doing really good work and they love hearing from their friends' kids that, like, they follow me and are getting a lot out of it, but they don't really understand it. Yeah. And I think, <laughs> you know, being a creative, for anyone who's a creative listening to this and being an Asian-American or a first-gen, it's hard. I mean, you're, like, you're deciding to pave down a whole new path that, like, just they our parents don't understand. And I think I've come to learn that my parents don't understand it because they want me to live a life that is optimizing security and safety in this country because they didn't move here for us to take risks. They moved here so we would just be okay. Once they are not part of this world anymore, they just want to know that we're going to be okay. And I totally, like, appreciate that, and I think it's very sweet, and that's their way of loving us. But since I've been able to show them that, like, I'm okay, like, I'm still super happy and I am financially, like, self-sufficient and I'm okay, like, they are starting to understand that, like, lives just look different here and that's okay so it's been you know a journey but I'm a little older now so I'm out of the like woodwork of having to prove myself or explain myself to my parents especially because I'm married and to my parents I'm no longer their problem I'm my husband's problem (laughs) so um you know I don't have to deal with any of that anymore That's so cool. Your parents did great because it sounds like all you and your siblings are thriving and doing, you know, in successful or not, it's just like you guys are doing what you love. And I think that's a rebellion in Asian culture is like to do what you love and um, to live the life that you want to live, which is horrifying for them because they're like, is there stability in happiness? Definitely. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I don't know, you can tell me if you relate to this or not. Maybe it's just my parents and my friend's parents, but I feel like the older they get, the more, the softer they've become in terms of just like, like my parents are now, you know, seven in their seventies or really late sixties. So obviously when I was younger, it's a different ball game. Like it was fighting, it was arguing, it was like so much resistance and tension all the time. But now it's just like, they've kind of come to accept and learn and want to be happy themselves and know that we're okay. And it's just like, there's a lot, there's just a ton of less tension between us. And I think it's because they're aging and they, they don't, I don't know, they've just become softer. Yeah. I mean, even as you bring back like the like childhood, like teenage years, I used to fight with my parents so much. And it was like, so much misunderstanding on both sides. And I see that what I keep telling them when there is some more friction, like with whatever, I just tell them to trust me. I'm like, Mm -hmm. I've made it this far. You've, you've helped me get this far. And I made it like, beyond what you thought I would just keep trusting me in what I'm doing. And like, know that I'll be okay. And I think that's been the best comeback (laughs) in a way Mm -hmm. of like, you know, you can't keep trying to control my life, even though I know you're doing it out of good intentions. And it's really, it's really changed our relationship. It's been amazing. It's whenever they doubt anything because of their own insecurities, I'm like, just trust me. 
Yeah, and I love that you say that because I actually think that that's something I had always said to my parents, especially through my like twenties. Was I would say um, a variation of it. I would say, don't you trust? Like, you need to just trust that you gave me everything that I need to be able to like be okay. Yeah. And they have started to be like, okay, okay, we did the best we can. We did the best. We did the best we can. I'm like, yeah, you did the best you can, and like it was phenomenal. Like, I'm gonna be okay. Like, you've taught me literally everything I need to know to like be okay in this world. Oh, it like almost brings me to tears because it's just like you see how much they want us to be okay. And it's like Mm -hmm. maybe their communication of that doesn't come out the best. But yeah, as I've gotten older, I've probably gotten softer too, right? It's like (laughs) both is just coming to this realization. It's like it's not worth fighting anymore and it's not worth um, being right. It's like be kind over right. Yeah. Aww. It's just so great to hear from you. And I love you. all your personal stories too, because seriously, they're so relatable. Like I've talked to you twice. <laughs> <laughs> and then just moving into travel, because we are a travel platform. Um, yes. I noticed on your personal handle, you're quite a jet setter and we are a travel platform. So what's been one of your favorite trips that you've taken? Um, uh, there's been so many when you sent me these questions before our recording, I like sat with this for probably the longest because I like want to talk about all the trips (laughs) I've taken. Um, but you know, the last big trip I took was phenomenal. I went on a five week honeymoon with my husband last year at this time, actually. Um, and it was just, I was way more excited about the honeymoon than the wedding, I think. Um, but it was, we did a week in Greece where we did like the very typical, you know, romantic honeymoon vacation. And then we spent a month in Asia, which was Mm. awesome. And so I am a very chill traveler. So I will plan, you know, where I'm going to stay for like, for a long trip, we planned through two and a half weeks. And then we left everything else open, which was really awesome. Because then we decided to go to the Philippines, and we went scuba diving, um, and saw the Japanese shipwrecks. And then We always knew we were going to end in Japan because that's where my mom's family lives. Um, But we decided to just hop to Seoul on the way to Japan, which was like, I love being spontaneous like that. And so it was it was such a great trip. And it was just really it was such a good time for us just as newlyweds to like travel the world and explore together and like start our marriage off like that. Um, But even just the countries we went to. So it was Greece, Bali. Um, Greece, Indonesia, but Bali specifically, um, the Philippines, Seoul, and then Japan was incredible. I like highly recommend all those places. Wow, that is so fun. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. That's like surreal. <laughs> you did like a country in a week with the love of your life. It's like, oh. yeah, it, a lot of people feel like a week wasn't enough time, but we, hmm. I feel like it was. I mean, I don't, you know, when you travel a day, is super short, but really, like, you can do a lot in a day. You can do a lot in 24 hours. You can see a lot. And so we were smart about just picking cities and not, like, whole countries, right? We picked very particular places, and we were like, let's just explore this one place for a week. Yeah, like, not overextend yourself, and then... Yeah. Yeah, I'm a, I love napping during my travels, so yes. it always feels like two days and one after my nap. Yeah. <laughs> and then, so what is it like when you go back to your motherland, which is India... Yeah. So, um, my mom is actually from Japan, so I'm full Indian, but, um, Mm. she was raised in Japan. My family has lived in Japan for my whole life, my maternal family. Um, and so 
I actually spent a lot more time in Japan than I did in India growing up. Um, and now, you know, of course, I, I don't really visit either as often. Um, both sets of my grandparents have passed. And so mm -hmm. they were really just like the glue on both sides of my family. But growing up, I would go to both India and Japan, but Japan more. I would spend three months um, a year every wow. year until I was 18, all, all my summers basically through my grade school um, in Japan. And um, it's interesting because when I go to India, which I will just call my motherland because technically that's where it is, um, I still, it's, it's such a, it's an interesting experience because I'm an other there, you know? So I'm an mm. other here because I look a certain way, I have a nose ring, I look Indian, whatever, but I'm an other in my quote-unquote motherland because I'm American and I don't dress a certain way and I don't speak the language perfectly and I have an American accent. Um, and so it's a struggle, right? I talk to a lot of my friends of color who um, visit their parents' home or their ancestors' home and we all feel very similarly. Mm. Like you are a product of the place that you are rooted in and my ancestors are rooted somewhere else and I am rooted in this whole new country that still doesn't fully accept me, but then my parents' home country doesn't fully accept me. So it's kind of it's kind of an identity crisis in itself yeah, all the 100%. time. Yeah, 100%. And then you were also raised in Japan, so it's like three locations where you find that you call home, maybe not even really India. I, yeah. wonder, I wonder if that's going to happen more, right? I mean, it is happening, right? Where it's like, everyone's just going to become more and more nomadic. And I wonder how, you, like when people ask like, what are you? Or like, it's going to be so hard to answer. Or like, maybe that question will go away eventually because it's just going to be like, it doesn't really matter, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, so um, I was actually born and raised in America, but because my mom was raised in Japan, I grew up with very Japanese, mm. yeah, very Japanese like, she would cook Japanese food at home. All of the like trinkets around the house are Japanese. We used to, we when I was growing up, we used to sit at that table on the floor and eat our meals, like very Japanese. Um, yeah. And then of course, like the Indian mentality that my dad had and my mom had and like the religion is Indian. So it was like a double whammy of Eastern cultures. And then I was like this little girl who was like, yay, I'm going to speak English all the time and I'm American <laughs> and like... I don't know anything else. And it's just, it's such a process learning and growing and evolving. And I think for first gens in general, especially in this country, our identity development comes a lot later because we have to go through all of these like processes before we come to a place of like, okay, like this is who I am and it's never going to be perfect. And I have a little bit of resentment towards my friends who have it a lot easier than me. And I have a little bit of resentment towards my parents who never fully understood me, but like, I mostly have a lot of gratitude towards the fact that like I am all of these things at once and that's okay. Yeah, I know when you said identity crisis, it's like that could be a whole episode on its own. Definitely. But that's such a systemic thing, right? Like mm. who like who actually benefits from knowing who we are, right? Like it's like why do we need to be able to like break ourselves down into little understandable digestible pieces for people we don't and I think that's like where the acceptance stage comes in well and back to travel how do you see travel as a healing tool I definitely do I definitely definitely do um I so I I think he I think travel is a healing tool in that just being able to you know the privilege of being able to like literally displace yourself into a new country culture community is like amazing. I think, you know, I think 
I think even more than that, though, like the travel mindset is really healing. So I think it's the like being curious, the feeling small and the getting uncomfortable. You can take those that mindset and you can have it anywhere. You can have mm. it in your own home town or home city just by like exploring new neighborhoods or meeting new people or doing something out of your comfort zone or learning something new. Um, and I think that's what I've learned from all of my travel is that you don't necessarily need to be traveling to reap the benefits of like just being an explorer and adventurer of the world. Um, because, you know, traveling is a privilege. And I think I have solo traveled a lot over the last six years I've been to 11 countries by myself and wow. I think those have been my those have been my most healing travel adventures because I've been alone and I've gotten to know myself really well but I think not a lot of people have the privilege or not everyone has the privilege to be able to do that so I think taking that mindset of just being an explorer and bringing it home is like you can definitely replicate the growth that you can have I love that Tra like travel mindset just is in its own way this breaking out of what's normal and being open to other cultures and being open to like new things that can change your world and last question is are you going to start a brown girl therapy retreat <laughs> <laughs> um i would like to i would love to hear more about what you have in mind but yes i would love that i think it would be really fun and really healing to get a group of first-gen women together for a weekend or for a night somewhere mm -hmm. um, and just like talk about our experiences and our identities and have fun and play and just yeah connect yeah retreats I've been to one and then um on she goes as our group has gone to another with the wing and it just seems like this opportunity to like just be present together is so important and then I feel like the bonds you make at retreats or just like a weekend away is so deep and so important in having these conversations. And then it's like friendships for a lifetime. So I'm rooting and manifesting Brown Girl Therapy Retreat sometime, <laughs> whenever we can, because I think you. it'll be amazing. We'll, we'll make it happen. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Um, so we've reached our time. It's been so amazing and personally healing to talk to you and I'm just so excited to keep watching you grow and flourish and keep celebrating your wins and thank you yeah I'm so grateful for your time and just you being able to talk to us with on, on she goes and for our listeners yeah, thank you for having me yeah and then for our listeners go follow us hedge at brown girl therapy on instagram and twitter sign up for her newsletter with even more goodies and then feel free to reach out to us with any questions about seeking mental health services and just know that like we're a community and a resource, even if it's not knowing the answer right away, we would love to help you find the answer. Um, is there anything else you want to add before we part ways? No, I think that's everything. I mean, you know, if, if anyone wants to join the community on Instagram, um, has questions, comments, my DMs are open. So yeah. Well, thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you.